The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. It's good to see all you folks excited about this study, uh, looking forward to the things that we're going to learn. I said to Carrie a second ago, my wife and I have been married for 32 years, Um, still working on it, (laughs) still working on on the biblical pattern of marriage, but it's been uh, the most fruitful, beneficial, delightful, challenging journey of my life. So I'm excited to be able to go over some things with you folks and Jason as, as well. Jason's leading worship for us this morning. West Treadway ran a marathon on Saturday, did well. He's back here playing piano. Uh, so I think that's amazing because he ran and flew the same day, you know, uh, came back here to be with us. But he did pretty well, too. I think marathons, I mean, 26 miles, who came up with that? That's ridiculous. And then they tell you, like, the people who run them say it's half over at 20-mile mark, you know, that last six miles is effectively, psychologically, half the marathon. Crazy. But he did well. And he ran a half marathon on Friday, so that's pretty cool. Well, let's go ahead and start. Glad you guys are here. And um, uh, let's open in prayer and ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for the time that we have this morning and that we will have, God willing, over the next number of weeks to study marriage. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for the way that we can share together, the way we can encourage one another and pray for each other and hold each other accountable uh, and also just learn content, biblical content will be helpful. So thank you for this time. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, strengthen each of us and enable us, Lord, to glorify you in our marriages set an example for children, um, an example to other couples, and also be blessed ourselves. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you got a handout uh, there at the, at the door if you didn't grab one. Uh, this is the first of a six-week uh, class. Um, you know, the elders thought six weeks would be sufficient, you know, for us to get, get everything fixed in marriage and get it all worked on. I uh, came across a book that I've been, uh, Christy and I have been reading some, and uh, Paul David Tripp's What Did You Expect? We're going to be leaning heavily on that book over these six weeks. Uh, it just so happens to break out essentially into six commitments that he urges on, fam- on couples. So that's perfect. So we're going to spend a week per commitment the way he lines it up. Each of those commitments has two chapters in the book, so we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, for me personally, I really like some give and take. Uh, I don't have discussion questions woven into the outline, but I would welcome interruptions at any, any moment, even if we don't finish the outline. You know, the outline's pretty good, and you can take it home, and the things we don't get to cover, we can. But I'd rather people say, you know, uh, ask questions, raise their hand, say, you know, um, this comes to mind. That would really enrich our time. So please feel free to do that. Uh, and I may stop and ask you guys questions, and they'll, we'll have that awkward pause. I found BFL, people are quiet. People, like, don't, don't want to get called on, definitely. Um, you know, don't want to, you know, you know, get volunteered. But seriously, you know, from time to time, I may stop and ask you guys questions. And so then, with all the courage you have in your walk with the Lord, venture forth and, uh, you know, raise your hand. All right, let's talk, let's, as we begin by way of introduction, let's just talk about the significance of marriage. Uh, Marriage is the most significant human relationship there is in the world. The most significant. Why would I say that? What would cause you to say, yeah, I agree, it is. Why would you say marriage is the most significant horizontal human relationship there is in this world? 
Okay. God created it. Very good. What else? Right, Ephesians 5, we'll talk about that in just a moment. There's a, a mysterious uh, <clears throat> display of the ultimate end of God in redemptive history, which is a union with, with his people through Christ, Christ and the church. Marriage is a beautiful picture of that, right? Any, anything else? Most significant human relationship. Order that are like a relationship with the Lord. I think it's supposed to be the closest union we can do. Yeah, so true. You know, you think about the two great commandments, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbors yourself. Martin Luther said, your nearest neighbor is your wife, he, he said, speaking as a man. Um, and, and so the most significant way you can love your neighbor is by loving your wife and caring for her. So it's a, just a beautiful thing. Also, just foundationally, we know biologically it's how God ordained that children would come into the world and people would be born uh, with eternal souls, spending eternity in heaven or hell that um, marriage is the foundation of that. And so therefore, I would assert that the health of a church is tied very much to the health of marriages. This is a marriage class. I, I'm not forgetting the, the role of singles in the life of the church, that some people are called to singleness. First Corinthians 7 makes it plain. Some people have a life of devotion to the Lord that frees them up from desires for marriage. And Paul talks about the advantages of that. That's not what this class is about. So I'm not going to keep circling back and saying that again. Again, if you're single, you have value and all that. That's all true, but this class is about marriage. And singles should care about the marriages in the church too, even if they will never get married they should assent to the fact that the health of the church is tied to how healthy the marriages are, etc. All right, so let's uh, go ahead and support that. Marriage is the most significant relationship in the world. We'll start with the fact that it's the first relationship God made. It's the first human relationship that God made. Can someone read for us Mark 10, 6 through 9, off your handout? At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, no man, let man not separate. Okay, so very, very important statement Jesus makes about marriage. Um, my reason for choosing that quote is, is the statement, uh, at the beginning of creation, God, etc. So the first thing God did with human beings, you know, he made... made man, Adam, from the dust of the earth and formed Eve from the body of Adam. Uh, but that was the first human relationship. Now, you know, if you have a wit, you could say, well, how could he make two cousins? You know, how would that ever happen? Or an uncle and a nephew. Uh, obviously, those things would be really impossible. Um, but it's not just an accident. It, it is intentional that God would make a marriage at the start. Marriage is central to God's plan for the world. Malachi 2.15 says, Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his, and why one? Because he was seeking <coughs> godly offspring. So first we just say he was seeking offspring. So that's a, a, biologically a, a male and a female, a man and a woman. But he wanted not just offspring, but godly offspring. And I believe, made this assertion, I think it's absolutely true, the most effective evangelism and discipleship there is in the world is parent to child. There is no more effective evangelism and discipleship than parent to child. And so all over the world, we just have to wonder what percentage of people who are born again, who are walking with the Lord, had at least one godly parent that influenced them, if not two godly parents. So I would say more than just 50%. I would say overwhelmingly. In every nation on earth, 
So when missionaries are going and, and are sharing the gospel and they're seeking to find some key individual and lead that person to Christ, what they want is one generation later, a whole bunch of Christian families raising up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The missionaries are just fire starter, starter for that. What they want to see is within a couple of generations, just healthy families all over that people group. That's what they're yearning for. And so it's foundational. God, he was seeking God the offspring. And then, of course, Ephesians 5. Someone read that for us, 5, 31, 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Okay, so that's a very well-known section and the most important section on marriage in the Bible, Ephesians 5. And Paul says that a husband and wife together, the two becoming one flesh, is a profound mystery, a deep mystery. Uh, and he says, I am talking about Christ and the church. So we have that kind of wedding language we have, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, this kind of thing, and the, and the new Jerusalem coming down like a bride dressed as her husband. It's such a beautiful image, that perfection in Christ. So that's a picture of salvation, ultimately. As a result, since marriage is so significant, so vital, it's under constant satanic attack. <clears throat> Constance, I mean, Tripp's book is What Did You Expect? I mean, one of the things that we can do in these weeks together is that you would expect satanic attack. Expect it and get ready for it. Be ready to fight. Be ready f to fight for the health of your marriage. Do not be surprised if it's, it's a fight. That you would understand how important it is, how vital it is for you as a couple. That your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your spouse is not your enemy, but actually should be your ally. And you hers or vice versa on the genders, but you, you should be your spouse's ally in a battle that he, she is having against demons, against uh, spiritual force of evil. But Satan is so good at tricking us into thinking our, our enemy is our spouse, and we are deceived, and we end up doing Satan's dirty work for him and saying things like Job's wife said to him, curse God and die. That's openly satanic. It's what Satan said Job would do, and he feeds those words into her mind. And, and that we would play that role in each other. That, and it's sad that we do. I think every honest spouse has had to say at some time, I have been Satan's fool and have said things to my spouse that he wanted me to say. And I didn't even believe them. I didn't think they were true. But once I said them, it was hard to get them back and I didn't mean them and things like that. So you know, for us, I think one of the purposes of the class is that you would wise up, be alert to what's going on and, and realize you have to fight for your marriage, and it's under satanic attack. So he's gonna come, I mean, from the moment that you take vows, he's gonna focus on your union and try to destroy it. He's gonna try to assault it. Therefore, our role as elders, the healthy church, should address this and help couples. Should feed couples, enable them to do the good works that God's prepared for them to do, to feed them the word of God, to give structures of accountability and prayer and things like that to help them. That's what we're gonna try to do. Now, Paul David Tripp's book, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage, will be our guide. Um, so uh, there's a lot of marriage books out there, a lot of marriage books. Um, Tripp it, it just does a good job of weaving together scriptural principles and good theology along with case studies and just the mind and the heart of a counselor. He's just got that, get, that skill, so we'll be leaning on that together. Let's talk about some preliminary insights. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, that Tripp gives us before we get into the first commitment. Again, his book is arranged in six commitments, which we'll read in a few minutes. 
and each week we'll zero in on one of these commitments uh, that we make to one another uh, for the health of our marriage. Um, but he has some significant um, preliminary insights, so let's uh, walk through it. First of all, you should have realistic expectations. It's right in the title of the book, What Did You Expect?, implying people can be surprised you know, by the troubles and the difficulties, and they shouldn't be. That sometimes young couples really don't go in with their eyes open, they don't really know rightly what to expect in marriage, and then they get surprised by difficulties and surprised by problems, and so that's the angle Trip's coming from, is that, you know, what did you expect? And then, you know, for us, it's like, right now, going forward, from now until the day that death takes one or both of us, what do we expect um, from now on? It's good to have realistic expectations. Number one, you are conducting your marriage in a fallen world, so you must expect troubles. You must expect troubles, all right? Uh, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So don't be surprised when you're having troubles, all right? Uh, also, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this salvation you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Summarizing Peter's statement, you have an initial effective saving faith in Jesus, but then that faith has to be purified. And, and the only way our faith gets strengthened and purified is by the fires of affliction, by the fires of trial. That's a large reason why I'm preaching through the book of Job, to help you to suffer well, to go through afflictions well, because you will most certainly have to. Now, that's just general afflictions. I'm speaking to everybody, young and old, singles, married couples. This is a marriage class. What I'm saying is that your faith is going to be tested and purified by difficulties, by trials. So it is beneficial that you expect trouble. You expect difficulty and not be surprised by it. Secondly, you are a sinner and you're married to a sinner. No big surprise there. You may be surprised by only one of those two things, all right? I'm urging you to not be surprised by either side of that equation. You know, exactly. You know, none of this elbowing stuff, all right? Don't do that to each other, all right? Elbow yourself, all right? <laughs> That's like the main lesson here. Elbow yourself from the rest of the weeks that we have together. Don't be elbowing your spouse. Um, but yeah, you're a sinner married to a sinner. Indwelling sin is, is powerful and it is irrational. It is absolutely insane. It is insane for us to disobey God. It is insane for us to sin. And it really is. It's just essentially irrational. Any of you parents that have growing kids and you've asked that ridiculous, fruitless question, why did you do it? There is no answer. There never will be an answer. You don't have an answer. You won't have one on Judgment Day. Um, there's no good answer at all. The amazing thing is through all of our sufferings and afflictions, when we say to God why, he has very good answers. And we'll spend eternity studying how good his answers are. He is extremely rational. Everything he does is right. But for us, what can we say? The very thing we hate, we do. And the thing we want to do, we don't do. The resolutions we make, even in our marriage, we don't keep them for very long. We're sinners, and we're married to sinners. So therefore, there are gonna be moments of jealousy, bitterness, conflict. God has brought you together in large part as a workshop of sanctification in each other's lives. So that at the end of a fruitful, healthy, 
blessed marriage, you are each of you more conformed to Christ than when you first got married. It's a workshop of sanctification. But there are just better ways to go through that than others. You know, there's just better ways. And that you would, in a very sweet, helpful way, be praying for each other, helping each other, seeing God at work in each other's lives, being glad for that. Uh, we've got enough struggle with the non-Christian world and with the flesh and the devil. We don't need to be each other's adversaries either. We can help each other. But that's, marriage is a workshop of sanctification. He's at work in you. It's important. We need to realize that. It's a deep work of sanctification. It's not going to be quick, and it's certainly not going to be painless. So we have to go through it, uh, et cetera. Um, God, thirdly, God is, is faithful, powerful, and willing. God's infinite grace in Jesus Christ is more than enough for you to have a healthy, fruitful marriage despite your sinfulness. Everything you need for life and godliness is given to us in the Scripture and in the Spirit and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything you need is there. There's nothing lacking. And Satan is deceiving us. It's like we need something more. We don't need Paul David Tripp's book. You don't need this BFL class. You don't need any of these things. The only thing this will do if we do a good job is to persuade you of that. That the, the atoning work of Christ, your forgiveness, your justification, the indwelling spirit that you have, the word of God that's available for you, all of those things are sufficient for you to have a healthy, fruitful marriage. God is at work. He will help you. And he's greater than Satan. And then fourth, the question is, do you have, therefore, proper expectations for your marriage? So let me stop and ask, why is that important? Why is it important that you have proper expectations for the remaining years of your marriage? It's so true. And Tripp's going to say that the, the, the DNA, the fundamental structure of sin is selfishness. And so therefore, a selfish view of marriage is so destructive. It's like, what can this person do for me? So good. Uh, anyone else on this? Uh, really good expectations. Right biblical expectations is going to be helpful for you going forward. Important. Have good, ex right expectations of your marriage. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we, yes. But we are basically, as human beings, forward-looking people, aren't we? We're like, where are we heading? Where are we going? I mean, that's what makes us different than animals, among many other things. But we know there's a direction to all this. There's an unfolding story here. We're going somewhere. Where are we going? Where are we heading? And, and the thing that's so beautiful about Christianity is, is that it gives us hope. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, you would have hope, and you would realize you're going to a good place. That's vital. If you're convinced you're going to a bad place, that's very hard to get up you know, and, and do anything day after day. So we'll get there. Uh, so the reason, well, what do you know, the very next thing, hope. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? Um, so yeah, hope. Hope is a, is a feeling, a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. I feel like I've said that probably a hundred times in the last five years. Because it's so vital for us in the Christian life, we have to have hope. If you're hopeless, you're stripped of energy, Stripped of ability to do anything. You're, you're just laying flat, metaphorically, if not physically, depressed, unable to do much. That's what hopelessness is all about. I believe Satan's top priority in Christian lives is hopelessness. Not sin, hopelessness. Sin to the end of hopelessness. Because if you have no hope, you're not going to be any, any threat to him. You'll be wiped out. You will not put on your spiritual armor. You will not take up the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. You won't do anything. You'll just be in bed and wiped out and depressed and discouraged. And Satan, that's what he does, and he's good at it. So conversely, good biblical instruction gives people hope. To say you can get to a very fruitful, wonderful place in your marriage. You can get there. God has given you everything you need to get there. And that itself is a penultimate goal to the glory of God. That's everything's to the glory of God. But that your marriage would be for the glory of God, hope. So after years of messing up, Couples frequently lose hope. 
very common. <coughs> this is not the way it was meant to be, they feel, and they wonder if anything could ever actually even improve. I just don't see it getting better. People are just so hopeless. Now, Tripp says the basic issues are rooted in worship. I think that's true. He just constantly brings us back to the vertical aspect. Fundamentally, these problems are all primarily vertical, our relationship with Almighty God. And he says worship in particular. Uh, the problem of us in sin is idolatry, which is setting our affections and the drive of our life on created things rather than the creator. That we are idolaters and we go after idols. Idols destroy marriages. Idols of various sorts destroy marriages, whether the idol is money, success, pleasure, power, sex, comfort, possessions. When marriages are destroyed, there's idolatry at the root of the destruction. So the answer is for each of the couple, each one, the husband and the wife, to put away their idols, to kill their idols, destroy them, and to set their affections on God, to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength by the, by the power of the Spirit, and to then flow out of that sweet, healthy, vertical love relationship with God into a horizontal love for your spouse. That's going to be just so vital. All right, so the goal then is a marriage rooted in the worship of God. A marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow out of a daily worship of God as creator. A marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow out of a daily worship of God as sovereign, and it will also flow out of a wor daily worship of God as savior. So understanding God the creator, God the sovereign king, and God the, the savior from sin, that's where healthy marriages will come from, not, not through some self-help book or some techniques or any of that. It's going to be God-centered, or it will not happen. So, reason to continue. Discovering God himself and the increasing health of your marriage. That alone is reason to continue. What do I mean by that? The healthier and healthier marriage gets, according to these patterns, what's going on is you're really discovering God. You're finding who God is. You're learning the love that your Heavenly Father has for you in Christ. Isn't that worth it? Isn't it worth it to see God's love for you in the increasing health of your marriage? And to have that happen for your spouse, to have her increasingly know how much God loves her in Christ, and to have her established in that, it is worthwhile. It's worth, worth doing, doing that. All right, so what's the road ahead? Let's talk about the six commitments, and we're gonna have a week on each commitment. That's gonna be a very, very quick pace. Um, but you can get the book and read it, and I would advise you to do that. I would advise you to slow down and, and, and read this together as a couple. You can order it, um, you know, Amazon will bring it to you tomorrow, I guess. I don't know that quick, but, um, they, you know, they're out there serving Jesus in their marvelous ways. So um, you can order the book. All right, no comments. Let's just keep moving. All right. <laughs> Commitment one. We will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. That's today's commitment. We're going to look at that. Mm -hmm. Commitment is, is something you're, you're, you're going to do for a long time. It's a long-term pattern that you're going to give yourself to. Commitment two, we will make growth and change our daily agenda. We're going to make growth and change our daily agenda. So your marriage is going to serve sanctification in each other's lives. Commitment three, we will work together to b build a sturdy bond of trust. Sturdy bond of trust. Commitment four, we will commit to building a relationship of love. Uh, commitment five, we will deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. 
and commitment six, we will work to protect our marriage. So that's what's in front of us over these next, um, you know, today, rest of today, and then five weeks beyond. These are the commitments. And we'll do one commitment per week. In the book, each commitment has two chapters. Uh, chapters are well written and not short. So we have a lot of content to get through. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Listen, I just want to make the most of the time we have. I don't know about you, but I have somewhere to be at 1030. So um, I've often thought if we're having a really wonderful time in BFL, you know, whatever, let's just keep doing this. But that won't work. I guarantee the elders will come get me. Um, so that would not be cool. So, all right, so today's commitment, commitment one, we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. Two parts, coming clean, confession, and then canceling debts. So that's what we're looking at today. Before I get into this, these words are not unfamiliar to you. Why is this, do you think, vital for a healthy marriage? Confession and forgiveness. I mean, honestly, if you really knew what to look for, you'd realize you sin daily. And so does she. And so, you know, I believe that in any Christian relationship, any close relationship, roommates, the giving and receiving forgiveness is, is, the, is essential to the healthy relationship. It's just going to happen. You're going to have to forgive each other. Anyone else on this? Confession, forgiveness. Why do you think two parts? Confession, forgiveness. Why are they each important? <laughs> Here I am again. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, and what Tripp's going to argue is that one of your jobs may be from time to time with humility, with gentleness, to elicit a confession from your spouse. They're, they're going on in a pattern of sin. They're treating you in a certain way. It's not helpful. It's sinful. And you have to go, like Matthew 18, and show your brother, your sister, their fault, just between the two of you. And that's a key moment, key moment, for the person then to respond with humility, and then part two, seeking forgiveness, confession, and then the giving and receiving of forgiveness. That's going to keep your marriage intact and strong. That's what we're looking at. So let's, let's uh, work on it. So part one of this is coming clean confession. So these are some quotes that Tripp puts in the chapter. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. That's the Book of Common Prayer. That's the two great categories of sin, sins of omission and sins of commission. I think it's going to be staggering on Judgment Day when God shows us all of the things he set up for us to do and we didn't do them. You know, we're very aware of things we did that we shouldn't have done, we have a sense, and even then, we don't, we're not aware of all of them, but both, both sides. And then uh, this quote, since nothing we intend is ever faultless, and nothing we attempt is ever without error, and nothing we achieve is without some measure of finitude and fallibility we call humanness, we are saved by forgiveness. So, I mean, sin's a problem. That's just a complex way of saying sin's all over the place. David said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. It's there. All right, and then I add these two quotes, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Someone read that for us, if you would. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. All right, very good. I can't tell you the number of times that verse 8 has been relevant in my marriage. If we claim we have not sinned, or we have not sinned. It's like, I kind of always start there. I didn't do it. I didn't do anything wrong. It's like, wow. <laughs> I 
rough moment. And it's like we have to go through that self-deception until we get to the truth and start saying, look, some humility would help you here. Um, you know, be honest. But it's just that reflex, and everyone does it. We claim we haven't sinned, you know. And what John says is we deceive ourselves. So it is amazing how often we do this. We deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves that, we, that sin isn't as big a problem in our lives. We're not the problem. It's our spouse, all that kind of thing. There's all this lying that's going on to ourselves. John says don't do that. If we confess our sins, now here we, we, we see really vertically, vertically, we're confessing our sins to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. These are powerful words. When connected with the infinitive to forgive. As a matter of fact, the more you understand biblical theology and the holiness of God, the more shocking the phrase just to forgive really is. It is actually righteous and justice for God to forgive you. Wow. We would think justice would be to con be condemned, to be sent to hell. Well, ordinarily it would be, except for the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And there was a covenant made between the Father and the Son that if the Son would shed his blood for us, he would forgive us. And that covenant has been made, and therefore God is faithful to that promise he made to his Son. He is just to the commitment the Son um, worked in his blood, and he will forgive us. If all that's true, though, why do we have to confess it? <clears throat> We're already forgiven, right? It's not like you come in and out of justification. You don't come in and out of being born again. You don't come in and out of positional holiness. Then why do we have to confess our sins if we are already forgiven before we confessed and forgiven after we confess? What's the answer? Why do I have to confess our sins to God? It's painful, isn't it? Especially when it's the same thing over and over. Here I am again, Lord. But he wants us to do it. And here's the thing. There are certain provisional daily blessings that he withholds from us until we do it. For example, a sense of our assurance, a sense of his presence and his sweet love for us in Christ. Those things he'll hold back. And we'll walk on in sterility and emptiness and hardness that day until we finally confess our sins. And then he'll open up his hands and start pouring out through the Holy Spirit a sense of his love for us and all that. He loved us the whole time. We weren't positionally out again and then back in. That's bad theology. That's not the case. But we're not experiencing it. We're not enjoying our walk with Christ. We're, it's a hard day. And he wants us to con confess it. So that's vertically. Then the second is the horizontal <laughs> confession, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So it's amazing how God sometimes entrusts your healing to some other person. Like he does, well, there's numbers of examples in the Old Testament where God gets someone to pray for somebody. Job, at the end of the, has to pray for his friends. So that God will forgive them. So that's definitely huge in marriage, too. It's like, you know, I have sinned against you. Would you pray for me? It's very humbling. But James 5.16, the person should want to do it. Your spouse should want. I want you to be healed spiritually, maybe even physically, because sometimes God disciplines us physically. We could be sick. could be things happening. So therefore, that you would draw, to, draw together over the sin. Beautiful. All right. Case study. Now, these case studies are so good. It's hard to get it across in a BFL handout. So you just need to read it, but I'll, I'll summarize um, this case study. A couple who never came clean. They were only good at pointing the finger at the other, leveling charges, making self-serving excuses. Imagine being a marital counselor and couples like this come in. It's like what you do for a living. So here we go again. <laughs> they were extremely skilled at acrimony and division. They continually rehearsed in their own hearts all the perceived wrongs their spouse had committed against them. 
Thus they had burned away all their affection for each other and had very little hope for their future. It's a pretty sad state of affairs. When Paul Tripp asked them what was wrong with their marriage, they both immediately answered by stating the other person's name. Wow. <laughs> I know what's wrong with our marriage. Her, him, you know, that's the problem. Therefore, Tripp said he was out of a job as a counselor. <laughs> I don't have this, because there were no true seekers in the room, only two people who hoped that he would fix their spouse. You know, and that's really, really an unhealthy three-way relationship there with a counselor. It's like, I'm, I brought my spouse here that you would fix him or her. It's not going to help. All right, so how many marriages are stuck in the same cycle of failure to look inwardly, honestly, you know, blame for the other, loss of all affection, and hopelessness? A lot. The key principle, no change takes place in a marriage that does not begin with confession. Confession is the doorway to growth and change in a marriage. Without it, the cycle described above is guaranteed. But with it, the future is actually bright. So if you're willing to be humble and to be honest, um, it's, it's very, very powerful. So let's talk about the grace of confession. It is God's grace to you. To genuinely confess your sins, first to him and then to each other. That's grace. So it is grace to know right from wrong, to see the law clearly and apply it to yourself. That's grace. It is a grace to understand the concept of indwelling sin. I mean, how many non-Christian couples go through the same kind of stuff with each other, but they don't have the truth about what's actually going on? They don't understand what's really happening inside their own hearts and in the other person's hearts. Part. It is a grace to have a properly functioning conscience. It is only grace that protects us from self-righteousness. We are so deluded. We, we lie to ourselves about our own righteousness all the time. It is a grace to see ourselves with accuracy. It is a grace to be willing to listen and consider criticism and rebuke. It is a grace to not be paralyzed by regret. And it is a grace to know that we can face our wrongs because Christ has carried our guilt and shame. Do you not see how rich we are in grace when we're really doing this? If we do this right and we confess our sins to the other person, say, I was wrong. What happened earlier was my fault. If I had been more godly, it wouldn't have occurred, things like this. It's very gracious. It's, it's, a, great, it's a very good work of God in us. To, and we should just give thanks for it, really. God is saving us from our sins. It's so powerful. So the grace of confession, the daily habits of a confession lifestyle. If, if this is how you live, if this is how it's going to be for you, uh, we will end up lovingly honest with each other. It's going to be a, a lovingly honest marriage. We will be humble when exposed. We will not make excuses. Actually, a really godly person expects sometime today to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of some sin. They expect it. Welcome it. Gives them a chance to focus some more on sanctification. It's like, I'm not expecting that the Spirit's going to skip a day today. There's so much work to be done. So today we're going to have some more conviction, some more repentance. Uh, we will be quick to admit wrongs. We will listen and examine our lives. Uh, we will greet confession with encouragement. Uh, in other words, when our spouse confesses to us, we'll encourage them for doing it. Thank you for helping our marriage be strong. I'm grateful for that. We will be patient, persevering, and gentle in the face of wrong. We will not return to the past, and we will put our hope in Christ. So that's a really good marriage. 
That's a very, very good situation. It's something that we yearn to see. Tripp wrote this, when the shadow of, a, of the cross hangs over our marriage, we live and relate differently. We are no longer afraid to look at ourselves. We're no longer surprised by our sin. We no longer have to work to present ourselves as righteous. We say goodbye to finger pointing and self-excusing. We abandon our record of wrongs. We settle issues quickly and we do all these things because we know that everything we need to confess has already been forgiven. And what is needed for every new step we will take has already been supplied. We can live in the liberating light of humility and honesty, a needy and tender sinner living with a needy and tender sinner, no longer defensive, no longer afraid, together growing nearer and nearer to one another as we grow to be more like him. Now, who wouldn't want a marriage like that? It's a good situation. All right, so that's uh, the issue of confession. Any questions or comments about confession? I'll get to forgiveness in just a minute, but the lifestyle of confession. Sound good? It's like, yeah, easier said than done. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. One, one thing that hits me I want to share with you. Do you remember how this uh, Jesus is having dinner at a self-righteous man's house and a woman who's known in that city as a sinner comes and just pours out love on Jesus and washes her feet with his tear, her tears and dries them with her hair and all this. And this man's thinking these terrible thoughts about Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. Jesus answers his thoughts saying, I have something to say to you. There was a money lender, and two, two debtors owed him, one 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither one of them was able to pay, and he canceled both their debts. Which of them will love him more? He answered, well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, you've answered rightly. Um, said, you know, this woman, her sins are many, but she's forgiven out of the greatness of her love. And Jesus is not making her love the causal factor for her forgiveness, but it was more reflexive. She senses that she's been forgiven. She's pouring out love on Jesus. So here's the question I want to ask you. You know you're a debtor, but are you of the 500 or are you the 50? What do you think? Who, who's bold enough to give an answer? I think I'm probably a 50. <laughs> and then you find out 500, nothing. 10,000 talents? The gross national product of the Roman Empire? <clears throat> Overstatement, Jesus. No, it's not. So, whoever's forgiven much loves much. If you find out you're forgiven more than you thought you were, that will mean you'll love more. Isn't that true? Isn't that the dynamic there? The more you think you were forgiven by Jesus, the more esteem you'll have for his atoning work. So that's what's ahead of you in this lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. Be honest. Tell the truth with each other and with God and find out how great a Savior Jesus is, how much his blood can cover. That's exciting. Now, I'm not saying where sin is multiplied then grace is multiplied. It's sin all the more. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you already sin enough. Even if you made strong resolutions every day to not sin at all, you're going to sin a lot. There'll be plenty to cover, but you're going to find out how much God loves you. And that's pretty exciting. All right, let's move on into the next chapter, Canceling Debts. And it begins with another case study in which this woman says concerning her husband, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive him. What's surprising to Trip, Sally, and Jeb, 
changes all the names. I wonder where he gets his fake names. I wonder where those come from. He'll go through a baby name book or something like that. But at any rate, Sally and Jeb. Anyway, um, Jeb, Sally said Jeb is basically a good man. He works hard, he provides for the family, loves the children, but there have been years of conflicts in their marriage. Irritability, constant low-grade tension, hair trigger outbursts. They've had no knockdown, drag-out fights, but consistently poor communication. A very negative feel is in the air day after day with misunderstandings. It's been going on for years. And they end most days in disappointed silence as they are lying in bed, they're rehearsing the sins the other has committed against them. As the years pass, the list grows longer and the burden of unforgiven sin gets heavier. And in that state, then they show up at his office for some marital counseling. And she begins, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to forgive him. It's no one big thing. It's not it. So, what is the problem in this couple's life? What would you say is the issue between them? Unforgiveness. They've not dealt with things. And so it's just accumulating. And what ends up happening is Satan is really robbing any delight they have in each other. They don't <coughs> delight in each other. They don't enjoy each other. They just are angry at each other. He also mentions, I don't think it's in the handout, but uh, you, we all have an inner lawyer, uh, our defense attorney that advocates on our behalf against our enemy. And so we're listening to the, the, the case, you know, and, and it's like, that's a very convincing case of what my spouse has done, the inner lawyer. Yeah, you win every case, by the way, with your inner lawyer thing, you know. It's like, uh, they really just don't like each other anymore. It's very sad. Very sad. You know, here's the thing. I, don't, I think we should not redefine love. Love includes liking. It means you actually enjoy being together. You really delight in each other. You look forward to the day with each other. It's not like, well, we, we don't do any of that, but we do love each other. It's like, what? <laughs> well, what do you mean? <laughs> what does that mean? You don't enjoy being together. You don't like each other. You don't, I mean, that's not, that's not love. So um, it's, we want all of it. And certainly love it involves sacrifice and self-denial and, and hard, hard things and all that. But it also involves really, you really just love being together. You love the person. Well, when this kind of thing's going on, that's gone. It's burned away. And all you see is a sinner, an unforgiven sinner. And that's very, very sad. It's what uh, Tripp calls this harvest of unforgiveness, the law of sowing and reaping. Someone read Galatians 6, 7 for us. So day after day after day, I mean, we have a sense based on what we've already learned today, you're going to need to give and receive forgiveness probably on a daily basis. Now, there are little moments and all that. I'm sorry, I was just snappish. I was irritable. Sorry, please forgive me. That was unkind. I do forgive you, that kind of thing. It's like, do you have to do all that? It's like, I think so, more than you think you do. But if you do that, keep really short accounts, and you go to bed each other's friends and loving each other and all that, you're sowing to the spirit in your relationship. You're sowing friendship and you're sowing unity and, and whatever. Conversely, if you don't, you're sowing to the flesh and you're sowing and you're gonna reap a harvest. That's what he's saying, this law of sowing and reaping. Stages of the harvest of unforgiveness. Um, first, immaturity and failure. Most people enter their marriages young, immature, and selfish, and people do dumb things as a result, okay? <laughs> You know, they just do, you know? First couple of years of marriage, lots of mistakes. Well, no surprise, you're immature. Um, 
And then that leads to accusations, blame, judgment, punishment, rather than confrontation, confession, repentance, forgiveness. By the way, those four words, that's just Tripp's thing. Confrontation, confession, repentance, forgiveness. All the time. Now, sometimes you confront yourself and your spouse doesn't need to do it. That's fine. But sometimes you've got to do that Matthew 18. You go and confront and say, look, when you said that in front of our friends, it made me feel this way. It was unkind. I felt, I felt thrown under the bus by you. That kind of thing. It's confrontation. You're going to say, hey, that was not good, the way that worked out. Um, <coughs> or you promised to pay the bills on time, et cetera, and now we're having to pay a fee, et cetera. You know, I need you to not procrastinate. Can we talk about that and what's going on with that? And there's just different things that you're going to have to talk about. Confrontation. Then the proper response should be confession. You're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I've sinned. It's hurt our marriage. You know, whatever words you want to use. And then, uh, along with that, repentance. So it's not an outward show, it's genuine. You're thinking differently, biblically, about this topic. You're right, you know, et cetera. And then forgiveness. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I mean, from now until one of you dies, or both of you die, this is how it's going to be for a healthy marriage going forward. It's like, oh, I wish it weren't so. Well, heaven is all about that. And, and, and we'll, we'll have that in heaven. No confession, no conf confrontation, none of that. Done, forever, we're done sinning. Hallelujah, hallelujah. But we're not there yet, and so we're going to have to do this every day. All right? Secondly, falling into comfortable patterns. Comfortable patterns. What does he mean by that? Well, confrontation, confession, repentance, and forgiveness are hard work. Oh, no joke. It might go difficultly. There might be some heat, etc. It's easier not to do it. So you've been sinned against. You feel the sin. You feel the heat of it. The other person apparently doesn't. What's going to happen? We're well, already starting on the, I'm sorry, Jeb and, what are their names? Jeb and Sally path. All right? You've already started. You've had one day, and you skipped doing this, and now there's a little bit of bitterness. There's a root of bitterness in your heart. Some things haven't been dealt with. Guess what? They're probably going to do that same thing again, and it's going to get bigger. All right, so comfortable patterns. So they just skip it. Thirdly, establishing defenses. Building up walls of defense against each other's irritated accusations. And you find the best defense is a good offense. What does that mean? You're defending against your own sin, so what do you do? Throw barbs. Throw barbs. Invade and conquer. You know, <laughs> we're going out hard on that person's sin. You know, we're fighting on their turf, and that way you don't have to deal with your own mess. So you go out, uh, so there's criticism, there's blame, talking about how difficult he is or she is to live with. If you only knew what I have to put up with every day, this kind of thing. And the couple, when they're saying that, they're blinded by self-righteousness. They don't see their own mess. They only see the other person's sin. Um, and we convince ourselves that our sins, yeah, I sin, but it's a minor deal. This really shouldn't cause any problem. But look what they're doing, that kind of thing. So you're minimizing your own sin, maximizing the other person's sin, etc. And then from this, uh, you're nurturing dislike against each other. Basic perspective on the spouse is negative person becomes consistently easy to dislike. Couples actually have a hard time remembering what attracted them to that person to begin with. They just can't remember. They actually couldn't put words to it. I don't know. I was out of my mind. It's very sad when it gets to that point. And then becoming overwhelmed. At some point, all of this becomes overwhelming. You begin to dread getting up in the morning. You're walking on eggshells with each other. You're wondering when the next explosion is going to hit. And so it's, it's a difficult day. It's hard to get through the day. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like a miracle to walk through the maze of complex interactions without having some blow up. 
And then envy of other couples. The grass is greener. Like, they seem so happy. Well, I'd be happy too if I had a spouse like they have. You know, this kind of thing. Those are dangerous thoughts, aren't they? You start thinking that way. It is, you know, even if it's not sexual, it, it, it's still a coveting of another person's spouse. You know, I would like a spouse who are kind and compassionate and understanding kind of thing. Grass is greener. And then fantasies of escape, thinking about ways you could get out of it. Maybe not into an adulterous relationship, but into divorce. Or, you know, a more reputable escape is just kind of acting like divorced people in the same house, where you're just distant and cold all the time. You just don't expect much from your marriage. You're not going to get a divorce, but you're just acting like it. So anyway, that's, those are stages. Very, very sad. Well, then you say, all right, sounds good, Pastor. Why don't couples just forgive? Sounds good. Let's just forgive. Well, <laughs> if it were just forgive, you would have done it a long time ago. Why don't people just forgive? Tripp says this, debt is power. When the other person is indebted to you, you're in the upper hand, you're in the power seat. All right? Debt is identity. This is who you are. You are the victim. You're being abused in your marriage. Maybe not literally, but that's the way you see it. Debt is entitlement. I'm entitled to better treatment than I'm getting. I'm entitled to it because you're the one that sinned at me. You did this to me. And so you owe me. And it's a weapon. Debt is a weapon. And this is the sickest part of all. It puts us in God's position. We are the judge here. We're sitting in on the case. It's like, do you not realize how arrogant that is? <coughs> says in, in John chapter 5 that God, the Father, has entrusted all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. He is the, the, the central, righteous, pure human being in the history of the human race. You're not. But at any rate, you're taking to yourself the role of being judge. So if you're honest with yourself, this is why you don't forgive for these reasons and maybe some others that aren't listed here. Right? So, unforgiveness is seductive. It's attractive. Holding on. You're nursing. Sometimes the verb is you're nursing a hurt. Right? It's nursing. It's like, no, let it die. <laughs> Don't nurse it. <laughs> anyway, um, bad image. But anyway, um, the idea is you're just like you're holding on to this thing because it puts you in this powerful position. All right, so we need to be honest about it and say, look, I don't want that. I want to give all that up. What is forgiveness? What do we mean by forgiveness? Well, first, it's a vertical commitment, a vertical awareness, followed by that horizontal transaction. So we go to the parable of the 10,000 talents. All right, I'm not going to read it, but you know the story. There's a king who wants to settle accounts, and a servant comes who owes 10,000 talents, a talent 75 pounds of gold, probably. 750,000 pounds of gold. Wow. Um, staggering levels of debt. He's not able to pay. So the king orders that he and his wife and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He falls on his knees, begs for forgiveness. The king forgives it, whole debt. He goes out, finds another servant, chokes him, owes him 100 denarii. We are not well served to look on that as a minuscule amount. It's not. It's about a third of a year's wages. Be like about 10K, 20K, something like that, $20,000 debt, significant. It's not nothing, but it sure isn't 10,000 talents. He chokes him and says, pay me what you owe me. I tell you what, the number of times I've thought about that image in my marriage is so vital. When I am forcing something from Christy, it's like I'm that evil servant who's choking someone else saying, you owe me. It's ugly. It really is ugly. And you need to be repulsed by it. You see how ugly it is. And in the parable, the servants, the other servants see it happening. They're disgusted. And they go tell the king. 
And the king calls this guy back in. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't I have had mercy on, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants I had on you? That's the parable. Let me stop, and you know that parable. How does that help our marriage? To ponder that every day, to think, how would that help your marriage to ponder that parable? Yeah, I mean, it should, as you said, it makes us meek. It should humble us. So get yourself ready. It's all about expectations, right? Expect sometime this week that your spouse, who's sitting right next to you in this BFL, will come to you with something you've done wrong. It's like, well, I mean, Pastor, you don't actually expect us to like, put any of this into practice, do you? No, I actually do. So what that means is you're going to have a chance to do this. You're going to do something wrong, and your spouse is going to call you out on it. I am just advocating it would be very good for you to remember the 10,000 talents at that moment. <clears throat> be humble. Be thankful. Don't imagine there's literally nothing from A to Z in their accusation that's true. No part of what they're saying is true. None of it. From top to bottom, from here to the heavens, there's no truth in it at all. What? Could it even be possible that there's nothing you've done wrong at all? I mean, let's bring in some of your best, most godly friends. Just kind of find out. It's like, are they all going to say, you know, he's right. He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, nothing. Pure as the driven snow. No. Bring in some of her friends. They're not going to say it. All right? No way. So be humble. Be thankful. What did I do wrong? Tell me. I want to do better. I don't want to be that kind of a person. Anyway, it'd be helpful. Forsake the power, for, forsake the position of being God, forsake these things and say, I'm going to forgive. That's what I'm going to do. You know, all right, I didn't write all these. All right, so if they confess humbly, forgive them warmly. I did, I did wrong. I'm sorry. I forgive you. Of course I do. I, I'm capable of the exact same things. Say gracious things. Now, if they don't, Confess. Suppose they put up a fight. What should you do? Well, then settle in for a longer process. That's all. Not, not right there and then. Say, okay, I'm just going to pray for God to help us. Don't say pejorative thing. I'm going to pray for God to help you because you need this help. Don't do that. I mean, that's, they're not ready to hear anything like that right now, it seems like. Just say, I'm just going to pray for God to help us and then treat them well. Treat them as well as, as if they had confessed and pray for them and ask that God would open their eyes to help them to see. You may have to go back to your spouse multiple times and come back. You know, there, there is, in this one sense, a rift in our relationship. I'm not treating you badly. I'm not being unkind to you. But there are patterns here that need to be addressed. And then in, good, in time, sometimes it may take, God will give them repentance. All right, when is forgiveness needed? Well, only when your spouse has sinned. Tripp is saying here, there are things we do that annoy each other that really aren't sin. They're not. They're just who they are as a person, how they live, or accidents, you know, mistakes, common human things that are not sins, all right? That's why the scripture says, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, all right? So I, I look on that, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievance as two categories, amoral offenses and moral offenses, right? Amoral is like, there's, it just, you don't like how sh she does her hair, I guess. I don't know. I mean, they're just ways. Or like how you drive. Or like how you drive, for example. That may be moral. I don't know. It's, 
Don't get me started on that one. That was uh, we've had some discussions about that. So. <laughs> Okay, about amoral offenses. How someone, how someone laughs. I mean, at first it was cute. Now it's not. You've been married for twelve years. It's not funny anymore. Um, but it's just going to be that way until you're not married. I mean, not not married anyway. That's a bad way to say it. Um, you know, until one of you dies. So I, I just amoral things. You know, and you could say, well, like forgetting. Like he gives as an example in the busyness of life, you forgot to stop at the store. It's like, we well, just say that's a sin. It's like, all right, whatever you want to say, it's just not a major sin. We all do it. We're all, we all get busy and we forget, things like that. So I just would say not everything is a sin. Some things are just things that happen in life. Do you want to say any more about that or anything that's on your mind? It could. It could be. I understand what you're saying. I think if I'm on the other side of that, if I think something was one of those amoral things and you should just bear with it, it's probably best for me since you seem to think it's a sin to just say, I'm sorry. I mean, just humility as long as, 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 as the day is long. Just humility, humility. Be more humble than you are, and even more humble than that. And I think it will serve you well. I just have found in my marriage, I'll say it straight out, 99% of the trouble from my end is my own pride, maybe higher than that. It's pride that hurts our marriage from my perspective when I'm prideful. And so I actually have just taken to say, God, just slaughter my pride today. Make me a humble man. Make me genuinely humble. And, and when I do, and I act out of that, we generally have really good days. I'm married to an excellent woman. I really am. And she follows my lead. When I'm humble and when I seek forgiveness in this pattern, she always does too for, in, for her own side. It's just how she is. So anyway, you can keep thinking about that. I'm not saying that it's easy to discern between amoral and moral. All right, what forgiveness requires? Humility. Compassion, trust, self-control, sacrifice, and remembering your 10,000 talents. Those six things are really good. They're good <coughs> attributes. We don't have time to develop them. But if you swim in th those things, that's what you get for sanctification. That's what, that's what God's working in you. Ten years from now, you are rich in these attributes. Look at it. I mean, you're rich in humility. You've got a high-level compassion for your spouse. The trust that, that is built between the two of you is strong and t vertically toward the Lord. Um, the ability to, to s control yourself and not say the thing that flashes in your mind. The willingness to sacrifice and that humble remembering. And then as a result, you will have a better harvest than the bitter harvest of unforgiveness. All right, we're out of time. Why don't we close in prayer? So, Father, thank you for the study we've had today. It's been good. It's been rich. Help us to put into practice, like Jesus said. You know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. I pray that you'd help us, O oh Lord, to put them into practice. And now as we go to corporate worship, Lord, I pray that you would bless us with a sense of your presence. I pray that the songs we sing, the prayers, everything that we do would be for the praise of your glory. And that as I preach on Job, that we would just have a sense of the immediate presence of God through the ministry of the word. So just be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.